Philistine country, the enemy country, hiding incognito, trying to avoid King Saul. Among his enemies, hiding in caves away from King Saul, who's hunting him down like an animal to kill him because he was jealous. Much like when King Herod, you know, sent for the Magi to find out where, you know, Jesus was, trying to kill all the firstborn children, trying to just, I heard about this other king who's anointed and I want to exterminate him before he can take my power from me. But then we, in this, we, we, we see David's humility and his submission to God and his respect for authority, for spiritual authority. Um, David gets this opportunity to sneak up on King Saul and, and kill him when, when King Saul is relieving himself in a cave. And David cuts the edge of his garment off so that he could kind of say, look, I had the opportunity to kill you and I didn't because I submit to your leadership and I, I'm not trying to get your job. Um, but David was so conscience-stricken that he had even done that, he couldn't, couldn't take it, you know? That's how his heart was. When Saul and his leaders and generals and his sons, including Jonathan, who was David's like, best friend, you know, when, when they died in a, in a battle, in a horrible battle, we see another... Um, we peek into David's heart one more time. Paul, David um, grieves. He grieves the death of Saul. He grieves the death, of course, of Jonathan, his friend. But, but his enemy, who had been trying to kill him for years and years and years, he grieving, grieving the death of God's anointed. It's something that is remarkable and certainly is beyond what people usually do. It reminded me of Jesus' command in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven, who causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, David loved Saul, and he prayed for him. That's uh, something we can definitely see is in the heart of God. It's also reminiscent of Jesus when he was praying as he was being crucified, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing to God. It's a beautiful heart. You can see why he was the man after God's heart. But finally, over time, with Saul out of the picture, not by David's hand, David becomes king. And what, what follows in, the, in 2 Samuel is the season of just amazing prosperity in God's blessing on David. All the, tr all the disparate tribes of Israel become unified over time and, and conquest-wise. Uh, with David as their king, he establishes Jerusalem, uh, which he calls Zion, as the, the political and religious capital of, the, of his people. David wins every battle that comes his way. He has a group of mighty men who do amazing feats of um, sneaking into cities and unlocking doors and just all these tricky military moves. I mean, God gives him amazing success. And God describes David's success um, as a gift from him. When David screws up with the sin we're going to talk about today, um, God enumerates to David all the ways in which he had blessed him as a way of saying, look what I've done for you. But you threw it away. God says, I anointed you king over Israel. That's a gift. I delivered you from the hands of Saul. That was a gift. I gave your master's house to you. I gave your master's wives into your arms. I gave all of Israel and Judah to you. That's, you know, combining all, the, all these kingdoms of people who did not get along most of the time. And if that wasn't enough, I would have given you even more. That was God's heart. 
to David. But unfortunately, even with all of this blessing and favor from God, even with his beautiful heart for God and that general humility and waiting on the Lord, David did screw things up pretty bad in 2 Samuel 11. And the rest of the book of Samuel, we see the consequences that befall David and his house for his sin. But, you know, even with that being the case, God never abandons David. And God continues to be faithful to fulfill his covenant through David's family line to bring a Messiah. So God is forgiving, he's loving, but it's a, it's a, it's a rough situation. So in chapter 11, Israel, Israel's greatest king, King David, the best king they're ever going to have, the one who kept the law, stumbles. From the roof of his palace, at a time when kings are usually at war, David is behind, so he's, he's comfortable, he's doing well, he's, he's in a leisure time, there's peace on all sides. But from his place, David sees a beautiful woman, And becomes fascinated, obsessed with her. And he arranges to meet this woman named Bathsheba, who is, he knows, a married woman. And this is all on David. I mean, this is, this is super messed up. This woman really did not have much of a choice. He was the king after all. But he ends up impregnating her. Instead of admitting his sin and seeking forgiveness through the priests and the system that were set up, David tries to cover it up in a horrible way. He sends for the woman's husband, Uriah, who is one of David's, you know, soldiers. He invites him to come home. He says, you know, take a break. Go home. Hang out with your wife, you know. But Uriah is such an honorable man. He says, how, how, am I, how should I be resting and seeing my family when all of my fellow soldiers are fighting? He's, it, it makes it even more painful to read the story because Uriah is a good person. He really is. David then tries to have him over for dinner and get him as drunk as possible, but still Uriah will not go home. He won't do it. He's too honorable. And so David, in the midst of a war with one of Israel's enemies, um, David arranges to have Uriah sent to the place where the battle is the most fierce, and then he commands his, his commanders to pull back and leave Uriah exposed. He's a dead man. It's murder by army, right? And this <laughs> killing of, the, of his secret lover's husband is, is just a gross sin because it was a completely innocent man. In 2 Samuel 12, Nathan the prophet confronts David in one of the, most, in one of the craziest exchanges between a prophet and a king you see in the Bible says this, the Lord sent Nathan to David, good name. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. The poor man had nothing except for one little ewe lamb he had bought and, raised, and he raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger 
against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a, a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered your hand from Saul. I gave your master's house to you, your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if this had not been, if this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in the broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. It's not simply that David broke the law, but the law itself has a means for David to have repented and cleaned up after his initial sin. David's offense is, is even worse because he acted in secret and he was willing to kill an innocent person rather than admit to his sin, which is much like the behavior that we saw from King Saul, more less than like David. So the first child that David has with Bathsheba does die, but they have a second child, a son named Solomon, who we're going to be talking about next week, who is the, the son that God loves very much. The great thing about David, though, and where we see, see that his heart is uh, so soft at times, is that right after he's confronted by Nathan, he admits immediately, I sinned against God. And he begins this painful path of repenting of his sin. Uh, and God does forgive him. Sin gets taken away from him, just like that. But there's still consequences, of course. And it was at this time that David, the musician, the king, the poet, penned Psalm 51, which we're going to end our time today reflecting on together. It's a powerful, powerful psalm. And it is a psalm that has three different words for sin in it and, um, and different words for uh, forgiveness. So it's a very interesting study to learn just how David saw things after he sinned. The first two verses contain the three major Hebrew words for sin and the three words for forgiveness that David uses in these first two verses. And throughout the psalm, psalm are launderer's terms with very concrete images associated with them. So David talks about forgiveness like someone who's doing the laundry, Right? which you'll see as we read this. David says first, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. First, David asks God to blot out his transgression. And transgression comes from the word pesha, which means rebellion or willful defiance. So it refers to someone who knows what the laws and the rules are and purposefully breaks them. So this is like, when you tell your kid, all right, get out, you know, stay on the side of the road, and they start drifting, right? Like, no, 
keep going to the left, stay out of the middle of the road. They keep drifting. They're like, well, I'm not in the middle of the road. I'm just a little ways from the side of the road. You know, they're, they're mincing words with you. They know what the, they know what the boundary is, but they're testing that boundary. Adults aren't really much better, are they? We test boundaries. We're obsessed with what the exact parameters of the law are and if we are technically breaking the law. And we want to know how much is too far. So if your attitude this morning is, what can I get away with rather than how can I please God, then we have that spirit of rebellious transgression in our hearts. And that's what we need to confess and repent of. David recognized that he had transgressed the law. He knew what it was, and he transgressed it. He stepped over it in open rebellion. He had not only tested the limits of what was accessible, acceptable, but he had intentionally overstepped. And he repents of this sin, and he asks God to blot out his transgressions. This is one of those laundering terms from Hebrew. The word blot comes from the Hebrew term macha, which means to exterminate by beating against a hard surface. So what a launderer would do when a garment had a tough stain on it was to take it and beat it against a hard surface in order to drive the stain out of the garment. And David's asking God to beat this transgressive heart out of him against the rock to exterminate that spirit of rebellion, of transgression from his heart. So the question is no longer for him, what can I get away with? But how can I please God? That's what he wants. He doesn't want to just do the minimum. And we can see ourselves in this, right? We, we, we can see clearly that spirit of transgression that's in us sometimes that wants to cross the line. David says to tackle it by asking God to blot it out. Next in the verse, in verse 2, we see David asking God to wash away his iniquities. Iniquity comes from the Hebrew word avon, which means perversity, depravity, scheming, trickery, courage conniving, planning for evil. So this is the kind of sin that David had clearly committed. He had planned to get Bathsheba, someone else's husband, into his house and sleep with her. And then he planned how to deal with the situation unsuccessfully at first and then finally with murder. Um, he goes far beyond just, transgress, just transgressing the law into the territory of scheming, how can I break the law? Not just crossing a line, but how can I break that law? So David asked God to wash away his iniquity. And this word wash, again, a launderer's term, which, which is uh, the Hebrew word kabak, which means when a launderer would soak a stained garment in detergent and then trample it underfoot and beat it with his fists in order to purge the garment of its filth. So David's asking God to take this iniquitous heart, this twisted heart, that schemes evil and soak it in the, in the detergent, to trample it underfoot, to beat it with God's fists until the stain comes out. You think that's a spirit that you have in your heart today? You know, to, to twist things, to, to plan for evil? You know, David dealt with it by asking God to soak him in the, in the cleaning solution and then to take care of it severely. This fast is a great time to think about these things. Finally, in verse 2, David asks God to cleanse him of his sin. And the Hebrew word for sin, shata'ach, is uh, just describing the idea of missing the mark. So if the bullseye is God's, fulfilling God's law, anything that misses that bullseye is sin. This is a general term. Um, and David asked God to, sin, to deal with his sin decisively by cleansing it. The word cleanse is when a launderer gets really close and beats the stain with a mallet in order to try and take care of a stain. It's perhaps the most direct and intense image 
that there was available for David to use. So David says, take care of my sin. Um, get really close to that, to that sin, God, and beat it with a mallet to take care of the stain. Get it out of me. Again, maybe this fast is a great way to look at these things and to ask God to, to strike these things from our, from our hearts. So David took his sin very seriously. He owned up to it. He agreed with God that it was very bad. And we also must do the same thing. Come before the Lord. Own up to the truth of our condition. Have we transgressed the law, overstepped the law on purpose? Have we have iniquities where we scheme on how to break God's laws at times? And then we just have sin that, that covers us where we miss the mark. And we need to ask God to, to wash the things, these things away in as severe and personal as a fashion as needed. You know, beating a stain against a rock, trampling a stain underfoot, soaking it in detergent, and beating it with your fists. These are the pictures of God, the launderer, the faithful one who does just that. And this is, of course, not just a moment, but as we look into our own hearts and see these, the seeds of the things that were in David's heart that he identified, um, we can begin this process of restoring our relationship with God. Once we agree with God, that the truth of our sin, our iniquity, our transgression is worse than we're willing to admit and worse than we think. There's ugliness in our heart. Many times manifested towards other people that are made in the image of God. We admit to that. We ask God to deal with us as severely as possible. And God begins the process of taking care of it, beating it out, soaking it, treading on it. And sometimes getting really close and pounding it with his mallet, you know, getting rid of that stuff. And the whole point of God showing us our sin is not to make us feel bad. It's to make us like Christ. You know, that's all God, that's what God wants. He's not trying to, he reveals sin so that he can restore us. We get, re, we have that stuff revealed to us so that we can be restored. We were never meant to be held back so severely by sin. But when we are, God offers the shed blood of Jesus to wash away the darkness. John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that they may have life, have it to the full. It reminds me of James 4 that says, Come near to God. He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Finish our time by reading this more, um, hope, this really hopeful section of David's prayer. After he talks about sin and God dealing with it severely, he says in verse 7, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. After we've repented from our sin, God uses even these sinful things that we have done for his glory by turning it around and using it for our good and for his glory. 
but we must bring it to God. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord. My mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David said this phrase, The Lord is my lamp. He turns my darkness into light. He knew that even though he had taken a time, a time out from his relationship with God, a time out from the wonderful things that God had put in him and had participated in all this sin, he knew that God could turn that darkness into light. But he had to deal with it severely to make it work out. And maybe that's what this fast is about for you. Maybe there is, maybe these types of sin, transgression, iniquity, just general missing the mark, is a pattern in your life. Maybe there is a relationship or relationships that are broken in your life that reflect this, this darkness. Uh, maybe there is a lack of love for others, a lack of love for your enemy and for those who persecute you and have hurt you. You know, this fast is a time to ask God to break every chain and um, to ask him to clean out these things um, into, as intimately as is possible. Father, we thank you so much that you point out our sin, our iniquities, our transgressions, not to hurt us, not to make us feel bad, but to change us. We pray that you would do that work in our hearts over these next three weeks as we seek your face in this corporate fast, that we would really get to the root of some of the things you'd like to do in our lives and make room for you to do them, Lord. And Lord, now I bless your church in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to go forth, uh, shining our light, not covering it up, living as those who are forgiven and free. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed to go and be the church.